0: Chapter 32 of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Lipkin. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. By Mark Twain. Chapter 32 When I got there, it was all still and Sunday-like and hot and sunshiny. The hands was gone to the fields, and there was them kind of faint dronings of bugs and flies in the air that makes it seem so lonesome and like everybody's dead and gone. And if a breeze fans along and quivers the leaves, it makes you feel mournful, because you feel like it's spirits whispering, spirits that's been dead ever so many years. You always think they're talking about you. As a general thing, it makes a body wish he was dead too, but done with it all. Phelps's was one of those little one horse cotton plantations, and they all look alike. A rail fence round a two acre yard, a stile made out of logs sawed off and upended in steps, like barrels of a different length, to climb over the fence with and for the women to stand on when they're going to jump onto a horse some sickly grass patches in the big yard, but mostly it was bare and smooth, like an old hat with a nap rubbed off. Big double log house for the white folks, hewed logs with the chink stopped up with mud or mortar, and these mud stripes been whitewashed some time or another. Round log kitchen, the big, broad, open-but-roofed passage joining it to the house, log smokehouse back of the kitchen, Three little log nigger cabins in a row t'other side the smoke house. One little hut all by itself away down against the back fence. And some outbuildings down a piece the other side. Ash hopper and big kettle to vile soap in by the little hut. Bench by the kitchen door with bucket of water and gourd. Hound asleep there in the sun. More hounds asleep round about. About three shade trees away off in a corner. Some currant bushes and gooseberry bushes in one place by the fence. Outside of the fence, a garden and a watermelon patch. Then the cotton fields begins. And after the fields, the woods. I went around and climbed over the back stile by the ash hopper and started for the kitchen. When I got a little ways, I heard the dim hum of a spinning wheel wailing along up and sinking along down again and then I knowed for certain I wished I was dead, for that is the lonesomest sound in the whole world. I went right along, not fixing up any particular plan, but just trusting to Providence to put the right words in my mouth when the time come, for I'd noticed that Providence always did put the right words in my mouth if I left it alone. When I got halfway, first one hound and then another got up and went for me, and of course, I stopped and faced them and kept still, and such another pow-wow as they made. In a quarter of a minute, I was a kind of a hub of a wheel, as you may say, spokes made out of dogs, circle of fifteen of them packed together around me, their necks and noses stretched up towards me, a barking and a howling, and more a comin and you could see them sailing over fences and around corners from everywhere's. A nigger woman came tearing out of the kitchen with a rolling pin in her hand, singing out, Begone, you Tee, ye spot, begone, sir. And she fetched first one, and then another of them a clip, and sent them howling. And then the rest followed. The next second half of them came back, wagging their tails around me and making friends with me. There ain't no harm in a hound, nohow. No and behind the woman... Comes a little nigger girl and two little nigger boys without anything on but tow linen shirts. They hung on to their mother's gown and peeped out from behind her at me. Bashful, the way they always do. And here comes a white woman, running from the house, about 45 or 50 year old. Bareheaded, and her spinning stick in her hand. And behind her comes little white children, acting the same way the little niggers was doing. She was smiling all over so she could hardly stand. And she says, It is you at last, ain't it? I out with a yes before I thought. She grabbed me and hugged me tight, and then gripped me by both hands and shook and shook, and the tears came in her eyes and run down over. She couldn't seem to hug and shake enough and kept saying, You don't look as much like your mother as I reckoned you would. But law's sakes i don't care for that i'm so glad to see you dear dear it does look like i could eat you up children it's your cousin tom tell him howdy but they ducked their heads and put their fingers in their mouths and hid behind her so she ran on lise hurry up and get him a hot breakfast right away or did you get your breakfast on the boat i said i had got it on the boat So then she started for the house, leading me by the hand and the children tagging after. When we got there, she sat me down in a split-bottom chair and set herself down on a little low stool in front of me, holding both of my hands, and says, Now I can have a good look at you and laws of me. I've been hungry for it a many and a many a time, all these long years, and it's come at last. We've been expecting you a couple days or more. What kept you? boat get aground? Yes, am um, she. Don't say yes, am um, say Aunt Sally. Where'd she get aground? I didn't rightly know what to say, because I didn't know whether the boat would be coming up the river or down. But I do a good deal on instinct, and my instinct said she would be coming up, from down towards Orleans. That didn't help me much, though, for I didn't know the names of bars down that way. I see I got to invent a bar. Or forget the name of the one we got a ground on or now i struck an idea and fetched it out it warn't the grounding that didn't keep us back but a little we blowed out a cylinder head good gracious anybody hurt no mum. Mm-hmm. killed a nigger well it's lucky because sometimes people do get hurt two years ago last christmas your uncle silas was coming up from New Orleans on the old Lally Rook and she blew it out a cylinder head and crippled the man. I think he died afterwards. He was a Baptist. Your Uncle Silas knowed a family in Baton Rouge that knowed his people very well. Yes, I remember now. He did die. Mortification set in and they had to amputate him but it didn't save him. Yes, it was mortification. That was it. He turned blue all over and died in the hope glorious resurrection they say he was a sight to look at your uncle's been up to the town every day to fetch you and he's gone again no more'n an hour ago he'll be back in a minute now you must have met him on the road didn't you oldish man with a no i didn't see nobody Aunt sally the boat landed just at daylight and i left my baggage on the wharf and went looking around the town and out a piece in the country, to put in the time and not get here too soon. And so I come down the back way. Who'd you give your baggage to? Nobody. Why, child, it'll be stole. Not where I hit it, I reckon it won't, I says. How'd you get your breakfast so early on the boat? It was kinder thin ice, but I says, the captain see me standing around and told me I better have something to eat before I went ashore. So it took me in the Texas to the officer's lunch, give me all I wanted. I was getting so easy I couldn't listen good. I had my mind on the children all the time. I wanted to get them out to one side and pump them a little and find out who I was. But I couldn't get no show. Mrs. Phelps kept it up and run on so pretty soon she made the cold chills streak all down my back because she says but here i wasn't runnin on this way and you hain't told me a word about sis nor any of them now i'll rest my works a little and you start up yarn just tell me everything tell me all about em all every one of em how they are and what they're doin and what they told you to tell me and every last thing you can think of well i see i was up a stump and up it good providence had stood by me this fur all right but I was hard and tight ground now. I see it weren't a bit of use to try to go ahead. I'd got to throw up my hand. So I says to myself, here's another place where I got to risk the truth. I opened my mouth to begin, but she grabbed me and hauled me in behind the bed and says, here he comes. Stick your head down lower. There, that'll do. You can't be seen now. Don't you let on your here. I'll play a joke on him. Children, don't say a word. I see I was in a fix now. But it weren't no use to worry. There weren't nothing to do. but Just hold still and try and be ready to stand from under when the lightning struck. I had just one little glimpse of the old gentleman when he come in. Then the bed hit him. Mrs. Phelps, she jumps for him and says, Has he come? No, says her husband. Goodness gracious, she says, what in the world can I become of him? I can't imagine, says the old gentleman, and I must say it makes me dreadful uneasy. Uneasy, she says, I'm ready to go distracted. He must have come, and he have missed him along the road. I know it so. Something tells me so. Why, Sally, I couldn't have missed him along the road, you know that. But oh dear, dear. "'What will Sis say? "'He must have come. "'You must have missed him. He... "'Oh, don't distress me any "'and I'm already distressed. "'I don't know what in the world to make of it. "'I'm at my wit's end, "'and I don't mind acknowledging. "'Time I'm right down scared. "'But there's no hope that he's come, "'for he couldn't come, "'and we miss him. Sally, it's terrible. "'Just terrible. "'Something's happened to the boat shore.' "'Why, Silas,' Look, yonder, up the road, ain't that somebody coming? He sprung to the window at the head of the bed, and that gave Mrs. Phelps the chance she wanted. She stooped down quick at the foot of the bed, give me a pull, and out I come. And when he turned back from the window, there she stood a-beaming and a smilin' like a house of fire, and I standin' pretty meek and sweaty alongside. The old gentleman stares and says, Why, who's that? Who do you reckon, Tis? I ain't no idea who is it. It's Tom Sawyer. By jings, I most slumped through the floor, but there weren't no time to swap knives. The old man grabbed me by one hand and shook and kept on shaking, and all the time how the women did dance around and laugh and cry, and then how they both did fire off questions about Sid and Mary and the rest of the tribe. But if they was joyful, it weren't nothing to what I was, for it was like being born again. I was so glad to find out who I was. Well, they froze to me for two hours. And at last, when my chin was so tired, it couldn't hardly go anymore. I had told them more about my family, I mean the Sawyer family, than ever happened to any sick Sawyer families. And I explained all about how we blowed out a cylinder head The mouth of white river and it took us three days to fix it which was all right and worked first-rate because they didn't know what it would take three days to fix it if i'd called it a bolt head it would have done just as well now it's feeling pretty comfortable all down one side and pretty uncomfortable all up the other being tom sawyer was easy and comfortable and it stayed easy and comfortable till by and by here, hear a steamboat coughing along down the river. Then I says to myself, s'pose Tom Sawyer comes down on that boat, and s'pose he steps in here any minute and sings out my name before I can throw him a wink to keep quiet. Well, I couldn't have it that way, it wouldn't do at all. I must go up the road and waylay him. So I told the folks I reckoned I would go up to the town and fetch down my baggage. The old gentleman was for going along with me, but I said no. I could drive the horse myself, and I'd rather he wouldn't take no trouble about me. End of chapter thirty two recording by Eric Lipkin.